And I was always jealous of people who had studied abroad in Europe or lived in Europe, anywhere in Europe. I would be jealous of them. Um, and I have found that jealousy is such a wonderful tool for letting you know what you really want. Like if you're jealous of someone, you probably really want what they have on some level. So what I was doing was it, uh, before in sort of preparation for this conversation, I was like, okay, so this is going to be a spontaneous conversation, but I wanted to have certain elements uh, or certain themes uh, that we could touch on. And this is based on sort of as an observer, what I have been seeing of your journey. And that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast. And it can be perfectly summarized with this one thing that you wrote on your LinkedIn. And I think that this would be a great overarching theme for this conversation. And um, also, uh, I think it'll be really uh, great for people listening to learn from your experiences and sort of how you've gone about doing what you're doing. So I'll read it out to you. And this will also be for the audience because they have no context of what I'm going to be, what I'm referring to. So it goes, this is what you've written on your LinkedIn. Okay. And this perfectly summarizes what I would want to capture in today's conversation. So it goes, I needed a change. So I packed my bags, bought a one-way ticket and moved to Berlin. I had no marketable tech skills. I didn't know any German. And I wondered if I made the right decision. Capital letters. Yes. Now I am the senior brand lead at Shopify. I'm living the dream in Berlin and I can pronounce she, I don't even know. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> okay. We're going to, we're going to go deeper into that. And then along the way, I've learned a ton about multimedia content strategy, remote work, leadership, and creativity. And then I think that basically is the essence of what I want to talk to you about. So you know where I want to begin? Uh, I want to actually begin with how we know each other. Yeah. And um, I think this is when, for me, I had just moved to Canada at that point. That's how I remember it from a time perspective. So do you want to take a first stab and then I can comment on top? Yeah. Yeah. That would be kind of cool to to tell our, our versions of that story. So we connected on Medium which I think is still relevant. I mean, I still read it from time to time, but it was 2016 when we connected on Medium and it was um, uh, before the elections. At that time, Medium was still fairly new and um, and we were both just kind of writing and we started interacting with each other on Medium. And I think we both respected each other's work and um and connected and just followed each other a little bit from there. Um, and I think that is a good place to start because I actually think writing on Medium was absolutely the first step without me knowing it, it was, it was actually a very critical first step to getting the ball rolling to then going to launching an international career in brand strategy. Yeah, because I remember at the time I had just moved to Canada from India and I was sort of starting over and I was trying to figure shit out. And here, behold, I I think, um, I don't know how the conversation began, but at some point I was like, you were like writing stuff and I was like, hey, you know, I'm doing this art project and feel free to use any of the artworks yeah. for the articles that you're writing. Yeah. 
And I thought that I remember that now. And I thought that was um, so generous of you. Like, you know, that's not an offer you get very often. If anything, it's the opposite. Like, hey, you use my photo credit. I mean, and that's a fair ask. But to have someone say, hey, I've developed this really cool artwork. You want to use it? It was a really cool invitation to collaborate that made you stand out because it was an act of generosity rather than asking. And that's such a powerful tool in professional development that people, um, it's non-intuitive and people overlook it too often. Yeah. I could plug a Gary V coat here, like give, 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 or something, something of that nature. Are we really outing ourselves as late millennials though by quoting Gary V? <laughs> I like, <laughs> I'm bashful about it now. <laughs> Or if, we, if we're like Casey Neistat, people are immediately like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. I think I probably watched every single Casey video he's ever uploaded twice. <laughs> really? I don't think I've watched any of it. I kind of missed that, which is ironic because now I'm, I'm deep into YouTube. But, um, yeah, I, I missed the Casey Neistat era. Yeah. I think it was uh, – I would say I have 10,000 000- – <laughs> hours of experience with Casey. <laughs> yeah, I, I I had just moved to Canada. And at that time, I was living in, in Brampton, which is like a small suburb outside of Toronto. And I had no money. I was living with my parents, my mom, actually. And um, that was my escape for because I had no money. I was like, I can't go anywhere. can't do anything. I survived on like $5,000 for the year. So anyways. Wow. So that was a fun time. That's how I remember Casey. So, so tell us a little bit about, you know, at this point in time when you were writing these articles, uh, where were you sort of mentally, professionally? What was going on in your life at that point, right before you decided to like, you know, take that leap across the ocean? Yeah. So um, I was not in a very good place actually. And I think there's maybe a parallel here between you, you know, maybe at that point you didn't expect to be living with your mom. I don't want to knock living with mom, but um, you know, I felt kind of lost professionally. I was in a role that just wasn't really a fit. Um, not the fit that I, I thought it would be for me. Um, I had started writing as a creative outlet and then I decided to move into we a co-living space, essentially. So we work experimented with co-living spaces back in 2016. Um, I moved into that, but still kept the job. But like, I think I look back and I'm like, that was definitely a sign that I wanted to shake things up somehow without taking too big of a leap. So I just like sold furniture and moved into a suburb of the same city I was living in. But it helped creatively to, to get me writing about co-living and kind of different themes there. And um, I kept up with the habit of writing, not really knowing where it would take me, not really having any ambitions for it to take me anywhere, honestly. Like, I didn't know what the way forward was from being um, a bit understimulated in this role that I was in. I just knew like, okay, this isn't the right fit. I'm enjoying writing period. (laughs) Like that's all that was on my mind. Then through medium, like through these, these articles, which I have to say, like some did well, but I, I think I only ended up with like 5,000 followers. 
And like, you know, I had some posts that do that did okay, but it's not like I was a viral sensation. Um, but it doesn't have, you don't have to be a viral sensation to start to get really fun connections out of it. And what happened was someone who worked in this new um, neighborhood that I'd moved to, she reached out and um, we started to talk about the neighborhood and she was like, yeah, my job is trying to, trying to bring people together. And I used to do small scale events to do that. And I said, oh, I, I've done that before. And she said, would you do that here? And I was kind of exhausted at the moment. And I said, well, I don't know, would you pay me? And she said, yeah. And I was like, oh, oh. And that turned into, uh, that basically turned into like a freelance consulting um, business that I had for a, a short while that enabled me to quit my job. And then I decided, hey, now that I'm a freelancer, I'd love to travel a bit and then come back to all my clients in DC. So that led me to book what was then a six-week trip around Europe just for fun, um, but then it turned into a, a move that I didn't see coming. So maybe I'll just kind of pause there, but that's how like the simple act of writing weekly turned into getting a client, turned into quitting my job, turned into having the freedom to travel. And then I'll leave, leave, leave a little dot, dot, dot for us to pick up on throughout the podcast. <laughs> You know, it's funny that, you know, when we look at things in hindsight, we're like, it looks very sequential and sort of logical progression. Yeah. But when you're sort of in it, it's like all chaos. You got nothing figured out. And you're like, I don't know where this is going. Yeah. Um, or, or the assumptions at the time were all wrong. Like I thought <laughs> um, when I when I quit the job, um, I thought I will now have a freelance business in D.C., that only lasted a couple months. My plan was actually to go to Europe and be an au pair for an Italian family for a month. That ended horribly. <laughs> so what? It, I don't even know what that is. Um, I was just going to like babysit for this Italian family as a way to like uh, be in Europe longer without spending more money. So I would, I would stay in a room in their house and like watch after their kid. And I was like, cool, this will be a cool cultural experience. And then I'll come back to DC where all my clients are and continue. And it was such a, it was just a shitty experience for both me and the family, like just comic, comic mismatch, let's just say. And so if it, but if it weren't for that, then I would never have gone to Berlin because I was basically just filling up blank weeks on a travel schedule that were supposed to be filled with like this nanny position. Um, so I was wrong about that. Then, of course, I never planned to move to Europe. It was all, all of my business was in D.C. I was wrong about that. So um, I didn't have it figured out. Like, now, you're right. Looking back on it, it's like, well, that just worked together beautifully. But every step of the way, I thought something different would happen than it would actually happen. Wow. Uh, I'm going to just put a pin in everything that you said, because I definitely do want to expand on some of the themes and uh, uh, my, not milestones, but points in your life at that uh, points in time. Yeah. Uh, but first, what I want to do is just quickly ask you. Before you were writing it, I mean, you had like this thing called a curated table. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe we come back to the curated table in a second. But just one more thing, if you could talk about and I found that really funny and hilarious was you're like under Washington and Lee University, you were like high marks in house parties. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, I'm a lawyer. So start um, there, baby. Start there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I feel like then, I mean, we go from having like dots in a sequence to a Jackson Pollock painting of a career. <laughs> just like, there's yeah, no, exactly. like, just chaos. Yeah. And, um, and, and there's actually a reason why I'm, I'm asking this specific question, because, you know, a lot of times and for audience listening, you know, we feel that, oh, everybody else's life seems so sequential and so like figured out and they look so shiny. But you're like the person who's living that life, they've had a very different experience. You know, we start to compare each other with compare ourselves with somebody else. And so I think that's why, you know, looking at your story and where you are now, it'll be helpful for also people listening to see where you started out and what you thought you were going to do versus yeah. where you are now. Um, yeah, uh, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, I didn't have any exposure to law as a career. Um, my parents were a Marine Corps officer and a teacher, and I think they were also really jazzed about the prospect of their daughter being a lawyer. Um, I, I was a student athlete in college, and so I thought, okay, if I work hard enough, I can get my law degree and make a lot of money. L literally, I was that driven. I also loved, um, I mean, I loved being persuasive. I love how you can craft language. And this kind of connects to medium, right? But I love how you can craft language to persuade people to do something. So I was like, okay, I like being persuasive. I like writing. I want to make a lot of money. I want to live in Washington, DC, because that's where my family's living. Um, let me go to law school. And so I, uh, I took a year between college and law school, um, studied for the LSATs, like baby sat, did some odd jobs. And, uh, and then that year I found out that, um, my work ethic only got me so far. Like I actually didn't do very, I did okay on the LSATs, not nearly as well as I wanted to do or thought I was capable of doing. That was humbling. Um, cause I went to a good university and, you know, had, had kind of been like, oh, I'm good at things until that point. Um, but I did, luckily I got off the wait list and into Washington and Lee, uh, got, went to law school and uh, I'm, I'm capable of this. Am I passionate about it? No. Am I great at it? No. I'm like, okay. Uh, but I did just love law school. <laughs> I loved my classmates. We were in a small town. There was no bar. So everyone ran on how, like we all did house parties. I learned to host just like epic parties. People really liked my parties. I hosted a, uh, what's ironic, I hosted an Oktoberfest, like a legendary Oktoberfest for years in a row before I ever had any inkling that someday I would live in Germany. So um, yeah, and, and in the end, like after I got a summer, oh, wow, I don't even remember what you call this anymore. I worked <laughs> at a law firm. There's a like a word for this, but I worked at a law firm after my second year and um, got impatient and started, you know, read the four hour work week and started a little side hustle and, um, and really that, and I felt so alive and I was like, huh, I think this is more of a direction I want to go in than law. But then I got back to law school and my very well-meaning friends were like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to like graduate law school and try to make money with an online business, Jessica, this was 2000, 2010, like that's silly. And so I was like, you're right. That's silly. And instead I, I mean, I, gra I don't regret graduating from law school. And then I, um, I did a clerkship in Delaware. I passed the bar 
there. Um, but actually just one more anecdote that I really am thankful for. So I, so I was, this is the, when I was clerking in Delaware, I was like giving law that one last shot. I was like, okay, maybe it's just, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe all the house parties were distracting. Like, let me do this. <laughs> the judge that I was working for um, really had a good sense of who I was, maybe better than I did. Um, it was around that time that I started Curated Table, which was, um, I basically asked strangers off the internet if they wanted to meet for dinner and I would be there and we would just like meet each other for fun. And this turned out to be like kind of a fun concept and people were into it. So I would do this and my judge saw me doing that. Um, at a certain point in the clerkship, uh, an interesting job came up in, in law and I would have had to leave my clerkship early to take it, but I was offered it. So I talked to my judge and I said, do I have your permission to leave early? And he said, no, um, I really need you for the year you committed to the year. And all of this was fair. Like he was within his rights to ask that. And I said, okay, I was disappointed, but I, I understood it. And then at the end of that clerkship, I ended up, I mean, there was some soul searching then, but I ended up getting instead an incredible, cool content strategy job outside of law in DC which is what I really deep down wanted. And I wouldn't have gotten it if it weren't for my judge saying, no, you're, he, and he told me at the end, he was like, I knew, I knew law wasn't for you. I knew you were more excited about other things. And he was right, but I'm still paying off my law degree. (laughs) (laughs) But what are you going to do? It's a painful reminder to be true to yourself and your passion. (laughs) Are there are there any memories or uh, situations or things that you experienced in your life which led you to law? Do you, yeah. do you recall anything or did you just sort of? I think um, I took a debate class in college with a really great teacher. And that's what got me really fired up. Like I loved I loved being assigned aside regardless of my personal feelings on it and having to dive into, okay, how would I convince someone that my side is right? I just really loved that class. And I thought, okay, maybe, and I also love writing and I loved money and that's, I put it together. Even though what's funny is I dated some lawyers and they were like, don't do it. And I was like, you don't know me. And I should have listened to them. I mean, they weren't, they weren't grade A boyfriend material, but they at least were right about the advice not to go to law school. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's that is one very very interesting um early career decision that you made uh to get into law on almost like in retrospect it seems like obviously you were just pursuing your curiosity but also seems like it was like almost on like on a whim. You're like, oh, yeah. let me just go see what happens." Yeah, I mean I think timing was important too because I my, I graduated law school in 2011, so smack dab in the middle of a recession. It like say if I graduated three four years earlier, it might have been really easy for me to just waltz out of law school into a six figure job at the age of 24, um, and just put on the golden handcuffs without thinking. But as it was when I was when it was time to graduate, it was just as hard to get an insurance law job in like bumfuck USA. I don't know if I can say that on your podcast. It was just as hard to get an insurance job in like a small market as it was to get a 
what to me sounded like a really cool marketing job in a bigger city. And I thought if I'm going to work this hard to get a job, I'm, I might as well be honest with myself about what kind of job I want. I don't want to be an insurance lawyer, you know, I'd rather be, so let me go after this marketing, marketing role. So now that when you sort of think back and, you know, in hindsight is 2020, it is when you think about that time that you spent in law and you finished law in that clerkship that you did, are there any lessons or things that you took away from that experience? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, law undoubtedly made me a sharper, more critical, analytical thinker. Um, It made me a better writer, for sure. So those are very tangible. I mean, now, luckily, because my house parties were so great, I have friends in high places like you know in uh if i ever get into legal trouble in the us which you know i don't expect but i'm covered uh so that's that's fun to know um and it was just you know i look back really fondly on that time in my life maybe because i was a student athlete in undergrad i really didn't get like a fun undergrad party experience but i got that in law school and i'm i'm very grateful that i was able to experience both kind of student lifestyles in one lifetime. So, so I, I still, I mean, the, the finances of it hurt, but I don't, it's really not worth regretting. And I've, I made tons of really close friends in the process too. <laughs> so uh, I, I actually want to know a little bit more about these house parties and what got you to start this thing called curated table. Yeah. I don't know if they're related, M- maybe in the sense that, Um, I, I mean, I think a little bit in the sense that weirdly throwing these house parties gave me this informal introduction to event planning. And so I learned little tricks like, you know, you always, you have to hype things up ahead of time when people, you always have to be confident. Everyone's going to show up and then people will think, you know, they won't call your bluff. They'll just show up. Um, I learned, I learned the importance of, of mixing up a crowd, like, Um, I would have your law school nerds there with your popular kids. And um, I didn't really give a shit, you know, they didn't have to talk to each other, but they were all invited. And um, that, that kind of uh, social cross pollination, I think is really important in making everyone feel relaxed or like they're part of something special. So, but, but maybe actually what led to curated table was the absence, like, I went from being in this environment where I was surrounded by people my age. We were all in the same environment. We were all down to party to all of a sudden being a young professional in a city where I didn't know very many people. Um, And I thought, oof, this is a bit lonely. This is lonelier. How do I meet people outside of my immediate social circle now? And um, this was like 2011, 2012. So it was before Tinder and Bumble, but it was, it was right when like, okay, Cupid, if, <laughs> for those listening, like dating platforms were starting to be a thing. Twitter was starting to be a legitimate way to connect with folks. And so I wondered if maybe I could use these online platforms to, um, to just reach out and say, Hey, I'm organizing a dinner in Philly. It's going to be six people. I'll be there, but no one knows each other. No one knows me, but I'd like make sure the conversation is lively and we're all just going to split the bill. And I think we're, and we're doing this just because maybe like, I want to meet new people. Maybe you do too. And it's more or less random. I would try to pick people who 
seemed interesting for some reason or another. You know, back in the day, you had to say more about yourself on each of these platforms. And um, yeah. Uh, and then I blogged about it, actually. So I wrote about the experiences, each dinner and the conversations we had. And I think that made it easier to get people to come to the next one because they could see, oh, this is what this group talks about. Um, and that that formed, that was not a job, but the fact that I had taken the initiative to do that and to blog about it and to have a system for organizing these events was enough that I could put it on a resume and talk with a straight face to someone hiring for a marketing role, even though I had no, no one ever paid me to do marketing before. That is insane. That is the coolest, most badass story ever because you're going <laughs> you know from law to being this cultural curator slash orator. Um, but yeah, I think you had something to say. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to thank you for that. That's, that's, I appreciate that. I didn't, um, I never monetized it. Some people would say like, this was really cool. You should monetize it. But I had this feeling that um, it was, there was something magical about people coming to an evening with no expectation. They weren't like, well, I paid for this. So everyone should be attractive or cool or whatever. Um, and uh, I never figured that part out. Once I got to my cool new marketing job, I kind of abandoned Curated Table uh, as a project, but it, thematically, it's something that has continued to come up in my life really interestingly. This, this, I don't know, this concept of like small scale interactions. I think that you almost approached it almost like in reverse, because if you look at like the, the Tinders and OkCupids and all that stuff. I mean, of course, they're all specific to dating and whatever not, uh, despite Bumble being like friends for friends also an option. I, I feel very like, I think that's like very sketchy. Mm, <laughs> I don't know yeah. why. Maybe it works for people. But um, the way you sort of approached it is you had in real life events and then you wrote about them. And then more people saw that momentum and then they, they didn't call your bluff and they showed up. So I'm actually more curious about like, what was driving you to like host these events and write about them? Like what led to that? Um, I mean, aside from, well, so like wanting to expand my own social circle, uh, it was just something that I, I don't know, something that I wanted to exist. <laughs> um, and I think, I think I also, I got kind of addicted to, how interesting people are like every dinner I went to. Um, I mean, I was choosing the people. So <laughs> I was trying to choose interesting people, but still like how fascinating it was that there's so many people doing so many different things. And I would have no, I remember one of the guys at the dinners like researched how crabs sleep. Someone's doing that in this world. And like, why would I, you know, a lawyer or a little fledgling lawyer at the time ever cross paths with this guy enough to learn about that? It would have to be happenstance. But I was kind of trying to make happenstance happen a bit more frequently in our lives. And I think also there was this really interesting phenomenon that every every second dinner, so every dinner was pleasant. There was only maybe one dinner where like someone was just a real jerk, but then the whole group kind of coalesced and it was a fun dynamic anyway. Um, but every, every second dinner was magical. Like somehow all this, we all clicked. And by the end of the dinner, it was like, I can't believe we're all strangers. Like we're, we're having such a good time together. 
And then you get hooked on that. And you're like, wow, there's so, um, this magic can happen anytime. And it just takes one person with a bit of initiative. And then when you are that person, even though I wasn't getting paid, I mean, you have clout then that you can, you know, I was getting invited to cool events and it opens doors. And all I'm doing is asking internet strangers to join me at a restaurant in Philly on a Wednesday. So it doesn't take much to to start and really, you know, opening new doors for yourself and for others. You know what? Like, uh, have you seen that movie uh, with Leo, the great Gatsby? As you were describing these parties and these experiences, that 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 was the real that was playing in my brain. Oh, funny. No, they were never really like not, you know, they were just six person dinners. So far <laughs> from great Gatsby experiences. Um, but I, yeah, I look back really fondly on those. Then the the interesting, so, you know, that conversation I had with the person um, when I was in the co-living space, who she was trying to make this neighborhood cool. And I mentioned I used to do curated table, these small dinners. So she worked for a real estate development company. And that's when my the dots connected. And I realized, oh, I don't have to ask the participants for money. I can ask this huge, rich real estate development company for money. They'll bankroll this everyone will have a good time and I know how to generate content that then this development company can use to talk about the neighborhood and who lives here and stuff like that and so it was a really you know I didn't think of that business model on my own and it happened years after the first curated table idea that I realized here's how to stay true to the kind of the spiritual principles of curated table while at the same time freeing me up financially to do more of that so that was that was really cool. Wait, was this like the first time you associated something that you were passionate about, something that you love doing with commerce? With like making money out of it? Um, I mean, I had thought of it and people had told me like, hey, you should try to make Curated Table a business. But like I had said, I, I, it just didn't, it just seemed, all I could think about was charging people for the, like, uh, you know, charging them for event attendance. And I thought if someone did that with me, it would immediately cheapen the experience. Wouldn't seem so magical. So I dismissed it. And then, um, then I, when I got my marketing job in DC, honestly, I was just very stimulated. I loved the job and I just didn't have the same kind of boredom at work <laughs> that led me to start and do curated. <laughs> and so I put it aside Interestingly, what's I, I actually started a different version of Curated Table within my new role. So kind of to get our clients talking to each other. So that was that was a fun way to keep the Curated Table spark alive, but in service of my company at the time. Um, yeah. And then and then I switched jobs, went to the second DC job where I was feeling a bit understimulated. That led to the writing, which led to kind of the rebirth of Curated Table. And then I went to Berlin and everyone's doing curated table. Like, I mean, which is so humbling, you know, and part of the reason why I think the city is so badass is like, yeah. So, so just to kind of spoiler alert, I haven't done anything with curated table, except that when people are like, I love this idea. I wish I could steal it. I say fucking steal it. Like go, I have no claim to six party, you know, six person dinner parties, go take it. I mean, I, I don't, I, I would love to see it continue happening where it needs to happen. Berlin is just not really that place. So the story and the idea and, and sort of the philosophy lives on. Yeah. I mean, if someone hears the, I've had people say like, hey, well, wow, I'd love to do that in Dayton, Ohio, you know, and, and write about it, but I don't want to steal your idea. I'm like, 
steal it. I'd much like do it. I don't care. <laughs> um, I'm glad to have left you with a good idea. And I think it's something that, that people benefit from. So go for it. If someone's listening to this, their pot, this podcast, like just do it. Do it. Was there like a specific reason why you had like only six people show up or was um, there, was that just like an arbitrary sort of it was like if you try to make a dinner reservation for anything larger than six you have to like call and it's a pain in the ass but on open table I could make six person reservations pretty easy and that's a you know four feels like a double date eight is like an event six is like enough excuse me six is enough people where you could talk across the table and it wouldn't be too disruptive so yeah I've definitely encountered that challenge with open with open table and a lot of restaurants in toronto especially if you hit that seven number mark then you have to set up for like the chef's menu and then a lot of mm -hmm. a la carte options go out the window so i see that there is some logistical <laughs> ease of going with six but then yeah. there's also this psychological uh aspect of it that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah and I think that, by the way, I think that idea is so cool because <clears throat> so much of our interaction and time we spend, I mean, especially like today's generation, they're just looking at their phone, even when they're interacting with other people. But something about, and I would love to know a little bit about this from your perspective and what you experienced, is that, you know, when you look at somebody face to face, when you look in their eye, eyes, plural, um, and you look at their facial expression and as you're talking to them, how they react to what you're saying. And then you get the innuendo, the subtleties of what the conversation is, what's the subtext. So that's so, so that's like completely missing from a, the new generation. Are they, I, I think they're called Zoomers. Um, I think I'm the not, Zoomers are older than, than it's Gen Z or maybe, but Gen Z, right? Yeah. I think those are Boomers. Boomers so, are older than us. Are Zoomers. Yeah. I've never heard, I haven't heard Zoomers. I've only heard Gen Z, but. I also just recently heard it. So I okay. probably red-handed caught i probably don't know what i'm talking about so and you know you can see how awkward it is like for them to be in a social interaction and they'll just like immediately like switch to like looking at their phone versus like facing the awkwardness or like a simple example is like somebody sitting in a cafe alone and just looking into the ether <laughs> i don't know what your experience and learnings were from you know having to sit in front of people you've never met and the ability to have conversation sit in that mm. awkwardness all that stuff any experiences and learnings from that yeah lots like because as you were talking i thought um one of the one of the critical parts so i had some people approach me and say hey i'd love to do this in la or these cities that were just very far afield from philly where i had started it and i kind of gave them some guidance and one of the um one of the pieces of advice was like, you have to be a leader at the table. You really, you are going to be doing some work because you need to go in, you need to have done some research on everyone so that if things are completely silent in the beginning, you can say like, hey, I know you mentioned you're studying at this whatever clinic and, and you're studying at another clinic. What's it like studying at, like you need to think what might this group, what do they have in common? What's an interesting difference? Prepare some open-ended questions. Um, and you hope that you only need 
to rely on those questions in the beginning. Sometimes dinners are awkward and you, and it is tiring and you end up kind of, you know, people are just constantly waiting for you to ask the next question. But the key is at some point you need, you'll kind of pick up, someone else will be a leader at the table and you as the organizer need to step back and, and kind of invite them to go ahead and take on that role. Then things start feeling really organic and good. Um, and so it's not, it, it's not like I just, I just invited people showed up and was like, okay, let's see. Like they, they came because they knew someone was responsible for them having a good time to some extent. And then once they felt that good time rolling, they started to chip in and started to get curious about each other and break off into side conversations, which is exactly what I was kind of like my ideal state at a dinner party like that. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, uh, Gen, Gen Z has a whole different way of interacting. And so, um, and they've been through some shit that I didn't go through when I was a teenager. So if this all sound, I, I wouldn't be like this generation needs dinner parties more than ever. Like, you know, they're going to innovate on a digital level. They're going to do this maybe in, you know, virtual realities in a really cool way that transcends, you know, who knows what biases I brought to selecting people, for example. So, um, one, I mean, one area, so I'm, I am expecting my first child, um, that's moving me into a whole different social scene. And I mean, I have kind of thought, how do I make, how do I meet cool moms? Um, I know this is a, a tough point. It's like another isolating life event. The first is, you know, you graduate university, you're in a new city, how do you meet friends? Another is, you have kids, now your world has shrunk drastically to the four walls of your house. How do you keep your friendships going? How do you make new friends? So, I mean, maybe there's room for a little bit of a curated table action in the Berlin expat mom scene. <laughs> I could experiment with that. For those listening from Berlin, if there are any, this is uh, the person you need to reach out to. <laughs> Yeah, it's open invitation for us to go, I don't know, breastfeed in a park together. Sign up, form. <laughs> Sign up form in the comments below. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I, you know what? I think that um, this whole, like, different chapters in your life, like, there's so many, uh, already I could see that there's so many themes that carry forward. And it's like, or the idea here is, that at the time or during the process or during when you're experiencing something, you're like, I don't know how this is going to relate to something I'm going to do in the future. And then <clears throat> that experience of talking to people, organizing these conversations, and now you're like, oh, wait, I can maybe apply that skill as a new mom. I think I've just shown some initiative, not, not to any incredible extent, just a little bit of initiative. And um, I haven't been afraid of meeting strangers. And uh, I've, I've definitely had assumptions about where those actions might take me, but then I've been wrong and I've been open to being wrong in, in the best sense of, um, in the best sense of the word wrong. <laughs> I've been open to being wrong and uh, that's led to some really, really cool opportunities but yeah initiative and a little bit of just like blindness blind courage has been a pretty good formula for me in life so when you're coming out of these like dinner parties do you come out of these 
house parties or the dinner parties that you were organizing for Cure Day Table, did you feel energized or drained afterwards? Um, both. I think most, like the good ones, you feel really energized, but it is a lot of work. So, um, so a little bit of both, I would say. Um, one thing that I that I've been at one point I had, I don't know, I read like the self-help book and it was like, what is your life mission? And I thought for me, a theme that I come back to again and again is like um, helping people to feel less lonely. Um, And that can take on a lot of different forms. Like I felt with my medium writing, I tried to expose my own anxieties and vulnerabilities in hopes that someone who's feeling the same way would realize they're not alone. Curated tables of more of a literal sense of, of making friends um, then when I, when I got to Berlin, I felt extremely alone. I think that was probably the loneliest I ever felt. Um, and it was a great reminder of like what that, what that problem is, what that feeling is and the different dimensions of it. And then, um, then when I joined, uh, Shopify, uh, one of the, one of the more fun things that I did in the be- in my first few years was I was in a bunch of YouTube videos about dropshipping, which was not part of my career plan at all. But um, but it was coaching people through a very tough, like entrepreneurship is lonely, starting a business is lonely, and it was trying to kind of be there for them now virtually and cheerlead them on. And, and I think that kind of connected to that mission as well. And so sometimes when I'm feeling like, what's my next move? I try to think of that. I also think about the side hustles I've started that have not really gone anywhere. And when I ask myself, did that have anything to do with making people feel less lonely? Usually the answer is no. You know, they were fun. It was a creative outlet, but it wasn't, it didn't have that connection to, um, to what I think is something that I'm, I'm very driven by. So before we dive into how you got your job at Shopify, um, I want to ask you a little bit more and I want to pry a little bit more into, you know, <clears throat> you talked about like loneliness and uh, there's this aspect of like, you know, being comfortable with spending time with yourself. Uh, and you just touched on in, in the conversation that, you know, how you were sort of the cultural curator, orator, organizing these dinners to house parties. So you've almost been in a way the opposite of loneliness is like you're covering, you're doing all of this stuff to maybe mm-hmm. cover the loneliness. I, again, I, I'm just using these examples and these words just to sort of instigate you to maybe if you want to talk a little bit about what's your relationship been like with loneliness. Mm-hmm. And now that you much more mature and you've had very different life experiences, how do you feel about, you know, loneliness and spending time with yourself? And what does that look like for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, I don't think I was covering up loneliness with curated table or house parties. I think that was just an age where it was a lot easier. I mean, in your twenties, it's a lot easier to just have friends, meet people, you know, like it was a very dynamic. And so I certainly didn't, even though I was there to be like, you know, I don't want people to feel lonely. I didn't feel lonely. I felt it was very popular. I had all the party invites. People wanted to come to the party, so it was fun. Um, then <laughs> moving to Berlin, um, 
And that feeling of loneliness was also paired with just completely, uh, like completely having to reconsider my identity in a lot of different ways. So, um, and then I think that that was what led to my loneliness. I was single for a very long time um, in Berlin and I started and before Berlin and I started to wonder like, what is it? Is there something wrong with me or what is it about me? I think I've actually always been someone who can, who's, who, who doesn't get so lonely actually, and who's very comfortable in my own company, maybe to a fault. You know, it got so comfortable for me to be alone that I think um, it became, a, even though I said I wanted a relationship um, to, to like myself and others, it was hard for me to let go of the patterns and the comfort with being alone and all those things that um, that kept, that kept me out of, you know, or, or, or prevented a good relationship from, from blossoming. And so, uh, yeah. I think I was fortunate then the pandemic was like a really positive moment for me because that's when I met my partner. And I think the circumstances of the pandemic helped me to f- focus on what was actually important in a relationship and, and, le- and kind of gave me the courage to say, okay, what if I, what if I'm not, what if my identity is not the single girl anymore? What does that look like? And um, I mean, having a, having a great partner definitely helped you know, the foment that transition. Um, but it was, it was a lot of work for both of us in the beginning. Cause I think I was struggling to, I had to really like let go of an identity to then have the new one of girlfriend partner and figure out version of that. I actually appreciate that you're sort of um, opening up and sharing some of these uh, in a very candid way and that's kind of what i was expecting and hoping for uh because these are not the uh premeditated and scripted answers um so i I, i'm actually and life and life and work really inform each other and i think i think we're fooling ourselves if we think that you know professional development has nothing to do with our personal development and vice versa yeah yeah i think there's like this constant urge to like put everything in a little neat little box and be like mm-hmm. oh this is my work life this is my personal life yeah but when you look sort of if you were to peek inside the brain everything is just like chaos everything is connected mm-hmm. and there's so many uh threads and it's just nuts um okay so this is okay so the first segment of this conversation was touching a little bit about sort of your early days from college where you were organizing parties and sort of the popular one. <laughs> and and then from there to when you got into law and got clerkship. And from there you got into this curated, you started curated table where you would organize these dinners for six people. And we know that's a hack if you, especially you have to make reservations. Anytime you hit that seven mark, it becomes a little bit complicated. So if you were to organize uh, uh, something via open table, uh, stick with six. <laughs> and then uh, from there, this is when you actually got your job with Shopify. And no. No. Oh, okay. Because you were doing... I was at this Atlantic Media um, in DC for 
two and a half or three years. Oh, um, that's not on your LinkedIn. It's no? hidden. No. Is it? Uh, oh, because I think it's too far, too long ago. So you probably are seeing um, like curated table as a freelancer is maybe where I, my LinkedIn starts these days. Um, or maybe not. I don't know. But any, I don't know that it's, I don't know, I mean, how, how deep we need to go into those particular roles. Like, I just kind of got my foundations in management and content strategy in those roles, which was great. And otherwise, I had, I was just living the life of a 20-something in Obama era DC. It was fabulous. I did a ton of online dating. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think that's how I was like, I still like meeting strangers um, and going to nice dinners and stuff like that. So uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I, and yeah, just like a fun period in my life. Um, and it, but eventually, as I got into my 30s and friends started getting married and stuff like that, then I found myself in this new job that was a little bit understimulating, led me to write on Medium and then launch Curated Table as a, not just like a, fun thing to do, but more of something, a way to make money with clients. Right. So, um, so now you're, I want, I would love to know how you actually got your job at Shopify. Yeah. And, and, but before you sort of answer that and you launch into that sort of story, there's something I found on your LinkedIn, which was really funny and interesting. And maybe you can, um, blend you know, uh, or attempt to, uh, no pressure, blend what you wrote on this LinkedIn post and with sort of the answer that you're going to give is, and this is what you've written on LinkedIn, I'm going to read it out. And I'll put it as a screenshot for the people watching. Okay. A few years ago, I was hiring for a creative role. In the job description, I told applicants to address address their cover letter to Jessica Guzik. Is that how you pronounce her name? Guzik? Uh, Guzik. Guzik. So I was mm-hmm. correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And guess how many applicants followed that instruction? Just two out of 100. The rest started their cover letter with dear sir or madam. It's easy to stand out as a job applicant. Pay attention to detail. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I mean, you would be shocked. Even so my, my partner has his own company now. And so we, uh, uh, I, I threw, threw him we're still shocked at sometimes like how it's, it's so much easier than you think to stand out from the crowd. So if you, if there's a dream job and you're listening to this, just apply for it, do a little research, figure out who the hiring manager is. Even if someone were to address a colleague of mine, even if they got it wrong, I would not care at all. I'd be like, they tried, you know, it's hard to figure out who works for whom in an organization, but um, well, so, so I moved to Berlin um, let me just quickly address like, so I didn't, I didn't have the job at Shopify until I had been in Berlin for about nine, six, six months. Um, so I, I moved to Berlin without a job, without friends, without anything. Um, and uh, sorry, uh, one more thing, actually, I, I think it'll be good to sort of also add, what made you pick Berlin out of all the oh, yeah. places on earth? I, so I was, um, I spent six weeks kind of traveling around Europe and doing some work remotely for my clients back in DC, always under the assumption that I would go back to DC where I had just launched this cool new events, marketing curated table business. Um, I had always loved uh, traveling to Europe 
And I was always jealous of people who had studied abroad in Europe or lived in Europe, anywhere in Europe. I would be jealous of them. Um, and I have found that jealousy is such a wonderful tool for letting you know what you really want. Like if you're jealous of someone, you probably really want what they have on some level. And so while I was in Europe, I, I did start to think, huh, I wonder, I wonder if maybe I could live here or travel here more often. Um, I don't know what that would look like, but I'm at least freelancing a little bit now, even though my my clients were all in DC. And then as I was going through this thought process, um, I was just asking people where I should travel in Europe. And someone was like, Berlin's cool. Like you might like it. So I thought, okay, why not? And it was honestly, it was love at first sight. I, I remember I landed and I went to this um, it was late at night and I went to this Korean bibimbap restaurant and they had like a basket of Legos in the table and my bibimbap was like five euros. So I was like, this place is cheap. It's like kind of, it's just super playful. Like, it's just like, whatever, fuck rules. Here's play with Legos while you wait for your bibimbap. And, um, and then as I explored the city, I also was struck by how entrepreneurial it is, how international um, and I also love the contrast. I mean, this is a city that's seen some of the darkest sides of hu human behavior and human history. And now it's one of the most progressive, hedonistic, experimental cities in the world. Um, and it's open to everyone. It's really inclusive. And I just haven't found that magic combination in any other city. And I knew within a few days that I wanted to come back and try to try to stay in Berlin for longer. So I booked my return ticket. I went back to DC for six weeks just to basically pack up some loose ends. And then I headed to Berlin. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. You're, I still you're feel that way. I mean, five over five years later, almost six years later, I still think Berlin is still has a, a magic to it, even after the pandemic. Um, and I feel really lucky that in those six years, I've been able to kind of live every lifestyle one can live in Berlin. Like I've been the, you know, freelancer going to the co-working space and everything. And, and I've, I've had a clubbing phase. Now I'm going to be like a typical, you know, expat mom here. Like that's, it's, it's a city where you can really li live nine lives, which is so cool. Am I sensing some contentment? <laughs> yeah, I mean, how how lucky I, that I feel. You know, it's funny. So I dated this guy. Um, it was real. He was a real scumbag in the end, but he loved clubbing. <laughs> and we happened to date right. All before the good the ones are scumbags. Right? No, <laughs> not the good ones. But you can find a silver lining, is what I'm getting at, because we happened to be dating right before the pandemic, and um, which we didn't know was going to happen, obviously. And he was all about clubbing. I wasn't that into it, but I kind of followed him uh, into all these cool clubs. And then the pandemic came, changed the whole landscape for, you know, over a year. Now I just feel so grateful that I'm like, wow, if it weren't like the one good thing this guy did was he actually helped me to experience more of Berlin in a way that I maybe wouldn't have otherwise pursued it, um, before that became just impossible. And now just, you know, now I'm one of those folks where I'm like, well, I knew Bergheim before the pandemic. So what's the use of going back now? So um, anyway, uh, all of this to say, so that, that's why Berlin. That was a really long answer to the why Berlin question. So I think um, 
I don't know how I, because I was doing some uh, snooping around, uh, looking at what could I find on the internet with your name on it. Oh, what? and apparently on Amazon, there's a book. Yeah. <laughs> called Let's Take Berlin. That's Do you right. want to talk a little bit about what that is all about? Sure. And what so, made you write it? <clears throat> yeah. So, so I came to Berlin um, kind of as my link, the, the section of LinkedIn that you read at the beginning said, um, all of my clients were in DC. It was, so I had to kind of give up curated table, even though it was off to a great start. I really decided this chance at living in Berlin and having an international presence is more exciting to me. And so um, I was doing odd freelancing content jobs for a couple of different clients, but I still had a lot of time on my hands. And I found the expat experience to be way different from the traveling experience, much more terrifying, much more intimate, um, much more lonely, much more, you know, so many more growth lessons at the same time. And I, uh, I decided to write about it. And so uh, I challenged myself to, to write a book kind of as a way to structure time. And this was one of a couple side hustles I had, you know, while I, cause I was underemployed as a freelancer, to be honest, I was like coasting off savings, maybe making 500 to, to 700 euros a month with my client work, but that wasn't enough to make Berlin work long-term. So I was kind of like reading all these self-help books and I was like, okay, I'm going to make it rich with self-publishing. And I tried this. No. Okay. I'm going to make it rich with, um, I forget what my other ideas, like I had a lot of ideas, but one of, one of them was, I want to, I'm going to sell print on demand products. And of course, when I went down that rabbit hole, I discovered Shopify. Now I didn't, I made no sales. I made like wine themed gifts and I tried to sell those and that didn't go anywhere. And my savings ran out. And then I was like, well, do I want to stay in Berlin and just suck it up and get a job, which I had told myself, I'll never work for anyone again. I love freelancing. Or do I want to keep freelancing, but go back to DC? And I decided I'd like to stay in Berlin. So I started to look to see who was hiring and I saw Shopify was, and I was like, Oh, I know Shopify. I used it to build my failure of a store. And when I applied to the job, I mean, this, this was 2008, no, 2017. Um, and Shopify, you've, I think outside of Canada, Shopify was not very well known. Certainly in Germany, no one had heard of it. And um, and they were like, you've used Shopify? And I was like, yeah, like it didn't make any money, but like I thought it was a cool platform. And that immediately set me ahead of everyone else. Just the fact that I had fucked around with Shopify in my you know, desperate attempt to make some cash uh, stood out to them. And um, I think one awesome thing about Shopify is they hire, they purposely look for people who have taken risks and done interesting things in their life and have thought about what they're learning. And so they looked at my checkered past and they were like, she's perfect, <laughs> bring her on. And I got lucky because I thought that I would never enjoy having a, a normal job again, but I actually, I've been with Shopify for over five years now and it's just been a really great company to work for. Right. Uh, so for the audience listening who probably didn't don't have the full context, I think there's also like a LinkedIn post on where ye, as you were in that sort of uh, uh, discovery phase of Berlin and Europe. I think there's one post that you had written about where you were thinking about wine themed mugs and you built yeah. like a Shopify store. 
and then and I think you wrote in that post where even though that enterprise itself wasn't successful, it led to the Shopify gig. Yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about, little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's just I'm kind of again like just do do something, just do something, just take the initiative, start a business, talk to the stranger, organize the event, um, and it does not have to amount to anything significant. Your initiative is the significant thing, and that's what I found to be the case. Like, you know, I thought I would thought I would make all my money with my wine theme gifts and Shopify. Turns out I would make all my money with Shopify, but not with the wine theme gifts, you know, like, <laughs> but if I hadn't just experimented and been like, maybe I'll do this for a little bit. This is also something I have to say, I feel pretty guilty about. So like, I, you know, when I'm connecting the dots, it all seems really nice, but you can ask any of my close friends and they'll be like, Ugh, the thing about Jessica is, you know, every two weeks she has a new business idea she's excited about, but then she loses interest in it. So I think I know this about myself and, you know, I can't fight it hundred percent because that actually has gotten me to some really cool places. You know, my short termism exposes me to tons of new people, new things, which helps at the same time, I lack that deep expertise and the deep network in one place that someone who might have made different decisions or stuck with something has. So um, maybe, you know, so this is my path because it's it's the personality that I have. But if you're listening and you're like, but I'm stubborn and I like to really like dig into something, that's certainly a, an amazing trait and will take you to great places just in a different way um, than, than it has for me. Right. Um, I think that, one thing that I mean, I definitely would take away from what you did there in terms of building something on Shopify and then getting a job there uh, is a lot of times when, let's say, candidates or, you know, if, if you've been laid off recently and you're trying to get a job or you're trying to find your first job, is the lack of number of candidates who've not even tried the product of the mm. company that they're applying to. So, and of course, this is not applicable in all situations, but in a lot of situations, let's say, for example, if it's a, if you're applying to Shopify, have you even tried using Shopify? You know, or let's say you're applying to SoundCloud or Spotify, you've used it, you've had like these curated lists. Yeah. And so you've immersed yourself in that prospective company's product or service. And and you can speak to it as a not only as a user or power user, uh, but also from your experience. Uh, yeah. And and that 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 is like one of the ways of standing out from the rest. Definitely, actually, you know, it's a hard sell with Shopify because it's like, you know, is it realistic for Shopify to expect every applicant to give a real thorough shot at starting a business before applying to Shopify? No, you know, so I think if when I see applicants who have used the product, absolutely they stand out. Um, um, but I also even give this advice to people already working for Shopify because there are lots of uh, folks in, um, especially on the marketing team, and they're wondering, like, how do I get to that next level within Shopify? And I ask, well, have you used the product? Like, and they'll say no. And I'm like, we're marketers. Like, we need to be able to speak directly to why someone would use this. What's the pain point? What's their hope? What's their dream? 
And if you haven't used the product, you are always going to be less literate in that than someone who has. So um, I know it's a big ask, but it pays off um, in the, the familiarity with, uh, with the product. And I just think like, you know, when you're, when you're starting, if it's your own business or events or whatever, um, everyone has the ability to create bullet, their own resume bullet points from scratch. Uh, and so if you feel like there's a career you want to get into or a job you want to have, and you just need to show a little bit more of whatever certain skill, just try to offer doing it for free to someone and just go from there. And that, that initiative will really, I mean, stand out because the less, the less your manager feels like they'll need to show you every single step of your career and more like they get to, you know, sit back and guide you as you blossom and find your own path. That's, that's, that's the relationship I prefer with, with uh, people that I hire and folks on my team. Right. Um, We're definitely going to circle back uh, on some of these themes because you are in a leadership position and um, we are definitely going to talk a little bit about what it is that you look for when you're hiring personally, but then also Mm -hmm. how that might align with the overarching, uh, let's say, philosophy and culture of Shopify. But -hmm. before we do that, just one quick thing. We've hit the one hour mark. How are you feeling? Do you want to take a break? Uh, I'm feeling good. Yeah. Yeah, How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good too. I'm really enjoying the conversation. Likewise. Um, And I'm definitely learning a lot. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's flattering. (laughs) Considering the background. Yeah. My uh, personal philosophy is just, you know, what can this person teach me? Mm. So, yeah. And, um, okay. So, uh, so staying on that note, so now um, the two themes that you expressed now was one is, you know, that person, the person, the person showing initiative and proactiveness, but also, you know, diving headfirst and doing it for free uh, to show maybe not only just their passion, they, how they might be curious and inquisitive. And those are all also pretty good skills to have in a colleague, a peer, or a team member, or a boss, yeah. anybody uh, around you, especially. So now, uh, okay, so you, you've now uh, joined Shopify and the experience of making a Shopify store yourself actually came in handy, even though that was not a success in itself but it was like a stepping stone to this Shopify role. Yeah. So, so when you got into Shopify, what was, what were the initial days like and what, what were you actually mandated to do at that point? Um, the initial days were awesome. So I was at the time uh, working for a, um, a brand that Shopify had acquired called Oberlo, which was a drop shipping app. So it was fully acquired by Shopify by the time I got there. Um, but we were kind of a small team in Berlin, a very international team in Berlin, working on Oberlo as a separate brand than Shopify. Um, and I, I loved it. I mean, I loved everything about it. I loved, we were moving fast. We were supposed to be experimental. We were working in, in a small team together. And um, first I was doing social media 
And then there was a couple other folks were starting a YouTube channel and the guy who was going to be in the videos uh, quit to do something else. And so they were, they were looking for someone who was willing to be in front of the camera to talk, to give drop shipping tutorials. And so I said, yes. Um, I didn't really think about like, what does this mean for my career or whatever? And uh, that, that then opened up and then I led the team that was doing YouTube and continued to be in some of the videos. And, um, and that, that was about maybe like two and a half years that I was doing that. And I had a blast. Um, I really love YouTube. I liked being in front of the camera. Um, and, uh, I think video content was really fascinating. Um, yeah. And now, and what's been really funny is like I, I was in my thirties, I'm still in my thirties for, for now, but like when <laughs> all this was happening twice in Berlin, I've been stopped by like 21 year old guys on the street being like, Jessica. And I've been like, don't think I matched them on Tinder. Like I think they're out of my age range. Like I'm like, yes. And they're like, I want your drop shipping tutorials. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, awesome. and, but you know what? Both times, both times those guys were, they, they didn't end up dropshipping. They were like, but I learned a ton. And like this one guy, he started his own Korean hot dog business. Like I was buying a Korean hot dog from him when he recognized me. So it's so cool that I could play some small role in sparking their entrepreneurial interest or nudging it along or whatever. So it was a really, it was a really fun, fun role. Um, and then, then eventually, uh, when the pandemic hit, a lot of things changed uh, strategically at Shopify, of course, and that's when um, Oberlo uh, as an app was sunset. And then I also, um, me and my teammates moved and started to work on Shopify, you know, Big Daddy Shopify, uh, the core brand, um, rather than Oberlo, the sub-brand. Right, right. Okay, so one second. I want to actually go back in time for a second and just focus a little bit more about this YouTube stardom journey. Uh -huh. So you became a bit of a celebrity. And um, so my question first would be, did you have any experience being in front of the camera when you were taking this on? Because, you know, you were like, like you said, you, you weren't really thinking about career and where this would go. Um, a little bit. Like I had fooled around on my own with like YouTube videos uh, before um, and just for fun. And I thought it was, but, but nothing, nothing consistent or serious. I had done public speaking in a previous role. Um, and so, and I, and I liked that. Uh, so, so I brought that to bear. I think being on YouTube, like learning to be natural in front of the camera for YouTube was a, turned out to be a whole new skill set. Like, you have to bring so much more energy than you think to, to even look like you have a pulse on YouTube. It's crazy. Um, and then I kind of had to learn, you know, first I was working off of a script, um, but eventually I felt more comfortable injecting my own personality into, um, into the videos and folks responded to that. And so it was a really kind of fun back and forth dynamic um, that I had developed all the while I was thinking like, what, what comes of this? Like, how do I, how does this play out? Am I going to be a, you know, am I going to be the overlow lady into my forties? Am I going to pass this baton? But then what, you know, how do I want this to parlay into my next step at Shopify? Um, and uh, I didn't, I guess I, at the end of the day, I didn't have to worry so much about that question because 
the pandemic and other factors kind of shaped, you know, the the path that I would follow. But um, but I just had fun in the moment. And I think that's that is a totally valid reason for choosing a role or a career. Like you'd be surprised how far you can go having if you're having fun. So I am sort of a budding YouTuber, content yeah. creator, and um, and I'm sure there's people in the audience listening who are also maybe trying to build their brand and be you know in front of the camera and be online on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, so on. And now you know, as I was sort of snooping around, like I mentioned earlier, I saw that on the um, YouTube channel, a Burlo uh, YouTube channel. Some of your videos have like insane amount of views, like half yeah. a million views and three, like 300,000, 100,000 views. And that obviously explains the stardom within the community where people recognize your face on the street. And, and then you also talked a little bit about, you know, uh, getting comf- comfortable having camera presence to initially having scripted to then injecting your personality. I would, be really curious first to learn a little bit about okay from soup to nuts what did the process for recording a video look like uh or maybe framed another way what would you recommend based on your experiences of doing some of these really viral and really uh engaging content for for the brand because typically brand content doesn't get a lot of views Mm. Uh, but so what was, what would you recommend as the right process for creating a YouTube video? Hmm. Like, well, one advantage that I had, even though for, for a while it was just me on camera, um, was I was always working with a team. So I had someone who was professionally producing and editing the videos I had. Um, then I had a great teammate who would do a lot of the research and script writing, um, for, and we were also, we had a SEO advantage, which was people were going to YouTube and they were searching for help with like how to start a drop shipping store, how to do email marketing. So we selected our topics a lot of times based on, on what people were searching for that we could speak credibly to. And then that's what we did. And we would try to experiment with formats, you know, like um, lists worked well, or we found like a format that really worked. We're recommending products to sell, for example. Um, and so, so I, if I'm going to periscope out and think about like, if you're a creator now, um, I mean, certainly looking for those, those searches is still really important. I, I like, um, I think vidIQ has a pretty good tool, um, Neil Patel also has a good tool for just figuring out what are people searching for within my niche that I can start to address with videos. And um, and then doing, I think I did a couple like courses about YouTube content that were helpful. You know, so whatever, if you notice someone did a video that's performing well, how can you do that video? How can you make it longer? How can you show more in it? How can you give more specific examples like um, to kind of piggyback off of that? Um, and then, then just keeping, I mean, this is such boring advice, but so true, but being consistent, the reward of consistency is not just algorithmic, but I got to know the material better. I got to know what I was talking about a lot better. And that made it easier for me to improvise and inject personality. 
um, it wasn't just that I was like, time to bring a little bit more Jessica to the party. It was like, okay, now I don't need to look at a, at a paragraph about Instagram marketing. I've, I know this stuff now I've said it so much that I can just talk about it. So that made a big difference. I would recommend. So, um, now actually I'm doing a lot of creator partnership work. So I lead a team that finds YouTube creators and then we, partner with them and we ask them if they can talk about Shopify and their videos. So I'm still very much in, into this like YouTube creator world. Um, Colin and Samir are two creators who have a podcast that is just awesome. So like smart. I've listened to YouTube podcasts before that are like, welcome, you know, like how to grow to six figures on YouTube. And it's just shallow and dumb, but Colin and Samir are truly just like smart guys um, love their podcast. So I would say any aspiring creator, just make sure you've got that podcast bookmarked and you're keeping up with it. For the audience listening, I will be putting all of these links in the show notes. So you can just keep relaxing in your sofa or driving along and not worry about searching for the links. Um, okay. So I there was some really good practical advice in there, but I think one lesson I definitely take away from this is is like when you're learning to drive, you know, you're so focused on, okay, where's the gear shifter? Where's the steering? So, but once you get climatized to that environment and it becomes part of your subconscious, and that's why, you know, when you drive in certain cases, you've been driving for a couple of years, you can drive from point A to point B and not remember anything that happened between point A and point B. And so what I'm trying to get at here is knowing your content allows room for improvisation, being spontaneous and making it candid and feel more authentic and real. So you should really know your content like the back of your hand in order to actually get to that point of comfort. And and that comes through in the camera. Yeah. Yeah. And engage with your audience. I mean, I would say that there's a maybe that the metaphor there is it's like a relationship, you know, and the more you get to know your audience and what are they always commenting about? Okay, go in that direction. Don't ignore them. You know, they're always asking you this question. Talk about it. Like everyone was always asking us, how much should we budget for a drop shipping store then? Like how much money does this take? And it took us so long to finally put a video out that was like, because I mean, the answer is it varies, but we could at least be like, here's one budget. And that video exploded because we finally were like, well, everyone's asking for this. Maybe we should make a video. So I guess don't be, you know, my lesson for, for, for Oberlo at the time was like, okay, we shouldn't be such so dependent on SEO. Like we need to actually also think about what's top of mind for our audience right now um, and, and create content there. Right. So the first takeaway is obviously get comfortable and know your content like the back of your hand. Consistency is also very, very helpful because it compounds. Then three is have a pulse on your audience and pay attention to what they're saying and what they're asking for. And, you know, follow that energy. Um, And then the other piece was that to get to that authentic place, which comes through and not be fake and shallow. I think the Colin and Samir example that you took. um, And the reason is that even Colin and Samir had actually called it quits. They had parted mm-hmm. ways. And at the very last minute, a Samsung deal happened. They came back and then they started this creators for creators. 
Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know. I, I, yeah, I thought maybe. Yeah, I thought maybe you didn't know this. But yeah, so they actually had called it quits after being on YouTube for a couple of years. In fact, Colin had packed up his stuff and was had left. <laughs> uh, but at the very last minute, a deal came through for Samsung where they were like, "Okay, we'll support you guys." And now they completely ch- turned around their brand and what they stand for and the content that they're putting out. And I actually uh, really enjoy their content as well. Yeah. So, so the last point where I was going with this was, don't call it quits. Maybe it's maybe it's you need to just change strategy of what it is that you're putting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Colin and Samir are a great example of that. Um, yeah. Okay. And then also uh, you can use helpful tools finally. Uh, like from Neil Patel with IQ or listen to Colin and Samir for helpful tips and advice. I think, okay, so that captures um, that phase in which you are making YouTube content. And so you moved away from that. So you, so you are no longer, and this is the sense that I'm getting that you're no longer in front of the camera and doing YouTube videos yourself. Correct. Yeah. It's not, it's been a while that it's been like, that. it's been about two years where I've been maybe a little bit more than I haven't um, been in front of the camera and um, instead have been working on ways to just kind of experiment and activate the core uh, Shopify brand. Um, in 2021, I was, I was still kind of experimenting with video. Honestly, 2021, I think I look back and it was a bit of a transition year for me because I was going from working on these small kind of fast moving experimental teams with Oberlo um, to Nat, but, you know, we could be fast forward and experimental because Oberlo was not a publicly, the, the name of a publicly traded company. And then it was really excited. It felt like, it felt like, okay, now I'm playing in the big leagues. I'm really contributing to the brand of Shopify in 2021, 2022, when now Shopify is on a lot of people's lips. Um, at the same, but at the same time, I had to get used to operating in a bigger organization. I was working with North Americans predominantly um, again for the first time in two and a half years. It was a weird, like reverse culture shock there, um, and uh, yeah, and just I fought it actually. Like I was very like everything here is so slow, and why do I have to write a brief for this? But I got. Um, Luckily, uh, Shopify supports us with amazing business coaches. I had an, an incredible business coach who really helped me through this process. And I realized like, you know, I love working for small kind of startup environments, but I don't want to pigeonhole myself in my career that I've only ever had experience in small environments. And I don't know how to operate within a larger organization. So I need to learn this skill set of how do I champion ideas internally? How do I articulate um, experiments and justify their expense. Whereas in the past, I could just be like, let's do this. And the next day we would like do it. Um, so that was a real learning year for me. And then I think I was able to apply those learnings this year in um, different projects that helped to grow Shopify's brand in Europe. So it was a really nice marriage of, okay, now I'm taking the familiarity with Europe that I've developed over the years as a market and marrying that with my familiarity with Shopify and, and the brand that I've also developed over um, over five years. So that was that was really a rewarding culmination, I think, professionally. Right. So uh, I know that you've sort of, um, let's say, uh, sprinkled uh, the different elements of what your current role is. But if you were to sort of 
speak to, you know, you are a senior brand lead EMEA. I'm guessing that stands for the continent. Uh, yeah. Um, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. But it's actually, we, it's, we're we not really doing any brand activations in the Middle East or Africa at the moment. So, right. But we still use the acronym. Right. So if you want to speak slightly just overarchingly what it is that you currently do at Shopify. <laughs> sure. So I am tasked with kind of leading up several different programs related to increasing increasing the number of audiences that are familiar with Shopify in key European markets. And so um, the ways that we do that at Shopify are through social media, are through creator partnerships and um, kind of different programs that might take the form of events or um, creative campaigns uh, and the likes. And so I have um, built teams and led experiments to kind of figure out which what works in moving the needle and getting more people to learn about Shopify uh, in Europe. <clears throat> By the way, I have a, a whole bunch of friends who had purchased the Shopify stock right between 20, during the pandemic. I think everything went crazy during the pandemic. I mean, everything just went upside down in terms of, in a good way for companies. Um, I know that Amazon went through the roof. Shopify went through the roof. I think they've also done the, sh they've also done the stock split. Uh, at the peak, I forgot what what it was at, but currently, let's say it's showing at two thirteen, and now it's down to forty nine. Okay, I I forgot it was split by four or two. I forgot. Anyways, um, so during the pandemic, you saw. So as we were talking before earlier, that you know during the pandemic, you know people were looking for ways. Um, to do drop shipping and start some sort of a side hustle. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> and that's where the, the content was really booming. Um, and then, so now, uh, and after that, then we, then we got into a little bit about your current role and what you're currently doing and you're also expecting. So I'm guessing you're going to be taking some mat leave soon. Yeah, I'm going to take mat leave for basically all of 2023. So, um, it's it is like a really happy uh, coincidence that I have myself settled in Germany, one of the best countries to become a mother, I think, when you're employed at least. Um, and then Shopify is also super supportive of new parents. And so um, I think for my partner and I, we right now we're thinking probably this will be, he has two children from a previous marriage. And so um, th I think three might be crazy enough for us. So I've just decided like I'm 38, I'd love to spend this time, you know, I've built a career that I know if I take nine months off, it's not gonna like derail me. And, you know, I've I've found new roles within Shopify before so I can come back to Shopify and kind of see where I can be helpful and impactful. So I've decided, okay, I wanna take this year and just experience motherhood and my baby and be able to be fully present with it. And then- um, and then get back, get back into things afterwards. Right. I feel really lucky. I mean, that is such a, such a luxury on so many levels to be able to do that. Um, financially employment wise, you know, just leave policy wise. So, uh, super grateful that I can have this experience. Right. So by the way, um, just out of curiosity, what is the, 
overarching without getting into like the weeds of it the 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 difference between what you might expect in the u.s or what you currently have in germany and then, yeah i think for a mom that, for so gosh the u.s i think it's like i think if you're working for a company with competitive leave policy in the u.s i want to say maybe you get three months off of paid maternity leave um Culturally, certainly, it's it's rare to take more than that in the U.S., I think. Um, but I'm not so close with that. In, in Germany, culturally, it's very common to take a year off maternity leave. And then from a, from a policy perspective, um, I'm, I can get six weeks. Uh, the six weeks before my due date is fully paid. It's called Mutterschutz, so mother protection period. And then I think um, I think that eight weeks after my due date, or maybe eight or twelve weeks after I give birth, is also paid. But then I can continue to take time off, and through Germany, I can claim something called L- like parent money, um, which I mean it's capped. It's certainly not like my full paycheck for as long as I want it, but it's still something to help support. Um, support me during the the months that I take off. My partner and I had thought of, like we knew we were going to try this year. And so actually before we even started trying, I was squirreling money away thinking, okay, if I wanted to supplement, you know, my own Eltern Geld for a couple months, what would that look like? So um, yeah, I'm glad that I thought ahead and and did that. Um, and then I'm also, I mean, glad that we were successful in our trying this year. And like, so far, it seems like that might be working out pretty nicely for us. Cool. Um, <clears throat> Germany is definitely very beautiful. I, I've spent, actually, wait, I have visited Berlin, Leipzig, uh-huh. and couple of other cities a couple of times i've been back in germany a couple of times and uh have a few uncles there who own a bunch of restaurants and stuff and so cool <laughs> and i remember getting off the hauptbahnhof station once and i was like um where is this place no sorry i was standing outside hauptbahnhof and i was like i had so lost and i'm like uh, i there's a passerby and i'm like excuse me Sir, where could I find Hoppenhof? He's like, it is not Hoppenhof, it is Hoppenhof. I'm like, okay, sorry. Oh, wow. Well, you got the true German experience if you were collected. <laughs> <laughs> so. My uncle actually owns a restaurant near that station. It's called Neumann's. Okay. And um, so I, I, I stayed with him on this one particular trip. Um, anyways, I learned that uh, Germans love eating a lot of mayonnaise. Really? Because at his restaurant, he would have, you know, like mashed potatoes, meats, you know, like almost like a bu- buffet. And the bowl for mayonnaise was as large as the chicken bowl. And people would be like taking big scoops. I was like, okay, I guess that's what. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, that was just an interesting cultural learning of Germans' dietary preferences. You know, I haven't picked up on that, to be honest with you. Like, it doesn't, like, I can imagine that happening, but I have not, there's never been a situation that I've encountered in Germany where I've been like, those mayonnaise lovers, because I hate mayonnaise. So I feel like I would have noticed that if I noticed, like, oh, there's mayonnaise on everything here. But I haven't. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe also because, you know, you're, 
you're originally American. And also because I was living literally at the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, you have a more close-up view of the, the dietary preferences there. That's true. Yeah, that was just maybe the only odd thing that I noticed that people were just like gulping away at mayonnaise. And I was like, what the hell's going on here? Huh. Anyways, um, <laughs> so, um, so, okay, so uh, the, uh, the team that I've been working with, by the way, I've been with the same company for the last five and a half years now. And all my colleagues left me when they went on mad leave and they never decided to come back. So, so I was always in like a bit of a matriarchy where my boss was a woman, my two colleagues, project managers were women. And then the designer that I, that I had on the immediate designer, also one of the designers I had on my team, she was also, so it was just, I was just surrounded by women all the time. And they were just always like, you know, just like <laughs> they had like, uh, what do you call it? Um, they would, in a polite way, guiding me. <laughs> um, anyways, so I, I guess they and we would talk a lot about uh, and the reason I brought that up is because we would talk a lot about like mat leave and what that looked like. And Canada has just, a great mat leave policy as well. I mean, I think that I think it's really nice because if I was working remotely for an American company, with a German mat leave policy, I feel like people would be like, huh, well, yeah, I hope you get a job when you get back, you know, because they just wouldn't understand it. But I'm lucky in that um, Canada also has a great maternity leave policy. So it's not so unusual, even to my North American colleagues at Shopify, that I would take um, the amount of time off that I am taking. No, absolutely. I think um, Canada is amazing. Um, it is a bit socialist on those fronts, which is in a good way. And and the reason there's such a huge contrast and why I'm sometimes inquisitive about some of these, let's, I'm using a loose umbrella bucket, bucket term here, social services, because I come from India and you have nothing there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No healthcare. You don't get mat leave unless you're like some in some rare company. Was that me or was that you? I think it's you. I think there's... Sirens in the but I think they're gone now. Okay, so yeah, so in in, in those uh, in rare instances where you might be working for some international company, they might offer something. But it's it's interesting to see a huge difference between what you have, let's say, in India, which is still considered a third world emerging BRICS country, uh, to America, North America, and then what's happening in Germany. Yeah, uh, I know we sort of went off topic there. It's just following my curiosity there. Um, yeah. Okay, so uh, okay, so now that you know, since you've had a pulse on what, let's say, overarchingly Shopify, because Overlo customers are also Shopify customers, if I'm using yeah. that as a catch-all mm-hmm. term. So since you've had first-hand experience and followed the conversation of customers and what they were asking for. How does that help you now being in this leadership position? And what would be your takeaways and learnings from that? I don't know that the proximity to Shopify customers has informed my leadership um, style necessarily. That's not, I think, I think that a lot of my growth in leadership in the past couple of years actually has been, I have to credit the the coaches again like they've they've been huge um 
I I was kind of imitating what I thought a leader should look like earlier in my career at Shopify. Um, I had uh, some business coaches call me out because we were at like a uh, a group event and they said, it's funny, whenever we do these exercises, you were, you know, where we're kind of role-playing a leadership scenario, you're very like um, dry and kind of serious and straightforward. And they said, but whenever we break for lunch, you're the opposite with all of your colleagues here. You're very like, you know, social and playful and stuff like that. And they said, your team is going to realize that too. You know, it's going to feel a little bit like you're a different person to them than you are naturally. How can you be more yourself? And so I think a lot of my leadership lessons in the past couple of years has been, um, how do I, uh, I, I grew up, in a military family. So I always like leadership was a topic, but leadership was also very like, ooh, raw, militaristic. Yes, sir. You know, that kind of model. How do I take the leadership principles that I think are so good in, in that environment, but bring my self-deprecating kind of like whatever, not very militaristic personality um, and, and integrate the two. And I think, I think the pandemic helped in one sense because you know, you can't put a mask on anymore when your colleagues can see everything behind you. And you know, so you just have to be more real. Um, but but yeah, it's taken it's taken practice. But I think I've gotten a little bit more used to leaning into the parts of me. You know, I can be an oversharer. I love being vulnerable with people. And I've learned, oh, those are actually really good tools in leadership um, that I can learn to use more and more effectively to connect with my team and inspire them. So that, that I think has been one of my biggest leadership lessons at Shopify over the past couple of years. So I'll just quickly summarize before um, one aspect that you talked about is being sort of authentic and yourself, irrespective of the room or context you're in. Uh, then, you know, sort of communication being a piece where, you know, how you show up in terms of being open, uh, and having or oversharing all those elements. So what other skills did maybe your business coaches or executive coaches, whatever you want to call them, help you sharpen or discover or help you build, nurture, etc.? cetera? Um, so one, one, one skill is being true to my emotions. Um, and the, so, so I had at one point I had a team member and um, it was a really challenging relationship for both of us. This team member did, um, did something that really put me in a tough spot, uh, really put the business in a tough spot and it made me really, really frustrated. Um, but every time I would talk to this team member, I would try to be the professional, you know, I'd be like, you know, I don't think we can do this, blah, blah, blah. And yet when I would talk to my business coach, I'd be like, oh my God, I, you know, I'm so mad. This is such a pain in the ass to deal with this now. And my coach said, you got to let him, like, you're not, he doesn't see any of this. My coach said, you know, your teammates not seeing any of this, the frustration it's causing, the anger that it's causing. Um, these are genuine emotions that are really impacting you. And yet you're covering them up for your teammates' benefit or what you think a leader should do. And so um, 
and I mean, I had studied the facts, like I felt pretty justified in my, in my anger at this particular situation. And so I scheduled a meeting. Um, I made sure it was uh, end of the day, Friday in a meeting room where other people couldn't hear, like I, I certainly didn't want to like um, cause any embarrassment or anything, but uh, I, I've expressed my emotions and it was, I, you know, I think a part of me would never think that is a professional conversation to have, but um, it right-sided our relationship for a couple of months. Like the team member got the message in a, in a way that I think they hadn't before. And they got the severity of the situation and the potential consequences It came through loud and clear. Um, and you know, I don't ever want to do that again. I think I've also learned to, to not wait until I'm at a boiling point, but instead if something is frustrating me, be honest about it early. So I'm not like, yeah, just a volcano of emotions, but, um, but it's important to let your team know when you're really disappointed or when you're angry, just like it's important to let them know when you're really impressed or excited about what they're doing. Like I've just learned it's okay to invite emotions into into the game. Um, and it's important to, to share them at the right time and in the right settings with your team. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I also felt amazing because I had so much anger <laughs> locked up. I mean, it was, I would be, I would like that week before the conversation in the shower, I'd be like rehearsing everything. I wish I could say to him and that's, that's my sign now. Like I never should get to that point where I'm rehearsing <laughs> things in the shower. If I'm that mad, I need <laughs> have the conversation with someone and not run away from the conflict. Right. That's hilarious. Um, so I, before we go to, you know, other things that you learned, I want to actually pick apart this a little bit more or, you know, uh, learn a little bit more about this specific one. Uh, skill is, you know, as a leader, as you go up the ranks, especially as you go up the ranks, as you become part of management or you become part of, the executive team, so on, whatever. One thing that you have to do on a pretty much day-to-day -day basis is you're always trying to persuade others or pitch something to someone or help, you know, helping them see what, what it is that they're doing, whether that's somebody junior to you. Uh, so, and, and, and one of the, uh, let's say, secondary or tertiary uh, elements of, you know, going through all these conversations is you end up having to deal with conflicts and having to have difficult conversations sometimes. For example, when somebody's not met their goals or they've not hit the right points in terms of metrics of what, whatever they needed to do, or when your boss is bombarding you with multiple requests and you're like, wait, hold on a second. So how do you, in terms of, you know, with, especially with this last example that you gave, are there any lessons personally that you've gained or through the help of your business coaches around conflict resolution, having difficult conversations? If you want to expand on that a little bit, that would be great. Mm -hmm. Also, one more thing. Again, this just is sort of like a slight offshoot of that is, and I don't know how you feel about this, but is there a difference in how you see it being a woman and, and if you're giving you know feedback to a guy a male counterpart or a female counterpart i don't know i'm just thinking a lot 
Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think I'm very, um, I haven't noticed a difference in terms of conflict conversations with women versus men on, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't think I tend to, to reach for that lens in most of what I do. Um, so, so to answer that question first, no, um, you know, the, the question about like, you know, how to build the skill of dealing with conflict, I think I've learned it everyone is probably susceptible to a different form of a conflict challenge, depending on who you are. So my conflict challenge is I hate conflict and I will play a lot of games with myself to avoid it. I'll brush things people do under the rug. I'll just not touch the subject, whatever. And so, um, you know, I've, I don't actually get into a lot of conflicts. That's sometimes the problem. Um, instead, I'll go to the business coach and vent and they'll be like, this is, should you should have had this difficult conversation with your colleague already, right? So um, so maybe my first piece of advice is get to know, get to know yourself and your own relationship with conflict. Does conflict make you feel alive, you know, in which case maybe you're kind of trying to draw it out. Do you love to have a really good rigorous debate and other view that others view that as conflict and therefore you find yourself always in these weird situations where other people think you're fighting and you don't? Are you like me where it's like you hate conflict and therefore, you know, little difficult conversations feel bigger than they need to be. So get to know your own relationship with conflict and then um, and then just try to counterbalance it. Like um, I know, I think as a leader, I take the development of my team very personally. I really want to be there for them, give them opportunities to grow, teach them as much as I can. Um, but I've learned that uh, just like just like in other relationships, um, I can give too much. Even as a leader, I shouldn't. I don't need to be this martyr. Um, there was one uh, one team member that I managed once, and I was, you know, trying to do a lot for them. And then I asked them if they could do a favor that was a little bit, you know, extra to their role for me. And they were like, no. And I felt so like, oh, wait, I've been like bending over backwards to help you with stuff. And okay. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not your job. I mean, I guess. And, and um, my business coach at the time was great. And she was like, you know, when you give more than you get in any relationship, whether it's, to your boss, to your employee, to your friend, to your partner, you're going to get resentful. And so you have to watch, you just have to kind of be aware, okay, what of my energy can I claw back? Or, you know, how do I express this to them? And so uh, that was a really, I think that was a recent lesson that stuck out to me as well. Like, awesome. I think it's great that I want to be a generous, helpful boss, but also, let me make sure I'm building a team of people who give that right back. And if not, then let me make sure I'm allocating that energy to a team member who is, you know, and, and I'm not overstretching myself for someone who, who isn't going to respect or reciprocate when I need that. You know, as you were sort of describing um, <clears throat> how you sort of handle conflict and how you feel about conflicts in terms of you like to basically avoid them, <laughs> Uh, something that you said very early in the conversation actually ha is at a bit odds with what you're saying now. And the reason I'm going to bring that up is just so that you can sort of maybe wrestle with it a little bit. It'll be fun to yeah. see how 
or you know i want to actually gut check my own assumptions here actually that's the thing because it's it was uh, something that i heard and this is to do with when you were in early days of law and you and you described that you know you were able to dispassionately almost look at a subject and talk do the straw man and steel man argument and yeah. one thing that's the underlying or inherent to difficult conversations is being able to be dispassionately look at a situation in a pragmatic way and able to help the other other person understand what it is that you are expecting and and what you are not expecting blah 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 right yeah so one thing that you described early in the conversation was that you really enjoy doing that and now in a difficult conflict situation that same skill set so those two points are sort of at odds with each other obviously the context is slightly different but but it's almost the same skill set yeah i think yeah the main difference i see um you know when you're in, in a litigation setting you're not talking about yourself or any of your personal interests or anything you want like your client whatever you know got in a car accident and they want to sue someone for negligence and you want to convince a group of strangers that such and such facts fit into such and such case law and you're not it's not person you know if you lose it sucks for a client you know but it's not personal whereas i think the the conflict that i struggle with is um personal things that I've done or, or that I was hoping others would do for me or um, emotions that I feel are justified, you know, or emotions I don't think. And so I think that's where the dispassionate goes away and I can't help but be more interested, more, more invested in the outcome of, uh, of the argument or the conflict. Right. Right, right. So yeah, so I guess, um, you know, and this is something that we, this is true to just humanity, you know, that um, when we're in the situation, it's so hard to read your own label. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's two books that I've been, that are on my reading table right now, on my bedside table, whatever you want to call that, is one is this book I'm reading called Crucial Conversations by Carrie Patterson. Yeah. And it's a really fantastic book that sort of captures some of these, you know, conflicts and difficult conversations. And then the other one is how to talk so little kids will listen. And (laughs) I'll put the links to both these books in the show notes. But one is catered to toddlers and kids and, and, and the other one is targeted for like corporate professional settings. And both of them teach the same thing. So um, anyways, I just thought that was because I was reading those books. And so as you were, you know, describing your experience, I was like, wait, those seem like at odds with each other. But maybe it's because the context is different. And in one, you're able to dispassionately look at and objectively look at a situation. Yeah. And you're reading somebody else's label. Whereas and there's nothing personally at stake unless, you know, you're like, I have to win this case, blah, blah, blah. Whereas in the other case, you know, it, it is about you and all that stuff. So interesting, yeah. interesting to sort of uh, learn a little bit about how, uh, what are the motions that you go through when um, a conflict arises? Uh, okay, mm-hmm. so, uh, and I know that we've sort of now hit almost a two hour mark. 
I was just going to make one because I think you're, the books you're reading are interesting because so um, my partner's reading Crucial Conversations. He's, you know, running his own company, d- deals with that a lot. I think I should be reading the book about how to talk so kids will listen because, you know, my world has always been, the, the conflicts that I have faced have been professional or inter- interpersonal in nature. Now I'm part of a blended family all of a sudden I had to get a lot. I mean, when you, when kids are part of the family, conflict is an everyday thing. Like there's no way around it. And that has really kicked up my conflict tolerance um, for the better. Uh, But I think still, yeah, learning to talk with kids. It's, there's, there's so much I'm learning about the limits of my own patience and, um, and how I can be more empathetic and stuff. And, um, yeah, having having him and his kids in my life has undoubtedly made me better at work. Um, and uh, hopefully I get better at step parenting them. But that's just, a, I think, another great example of how um, we shouldn't try to separate life. The lessons we learn in life and work, they're so supportive of one another in ways that might surprise us at first, but really come naturally in the end. So true. I totally agree with you that, um, you know, we're living in the present moment and whether that time is being spent for work or personal life, um, the, for the brain, it's all just experiences. Yeah. And uh, of course we can tell ourselves whatever story we want. Uh, but one thing that's, that's very apparent when I've read and I'm, by the way, I'm reading these books for the second time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just like to stick to a few books and just sort of have post-it notes, ref, refer to them constantly. And I'm really fascinated by psychology, human behavior. And one thing that I do recognize is that the more tech we have, the more metrics we have, the more dashboards, there's more, like, it's, a, it's almost like lopsided. You need to have more emphasis on face-to-face interactions. You're dealing with people. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with conflict? How do you inspire them to do something? Or yeah. how do you get them to do something outside of their role? All that stuff, right? It's all people with people. Mm-hmm. And the people who get people uh, really win, um, especially when it comes to business or job, whatever. Anyways, just as two cents, but I highly recommend those two books, Crucial Conversations and How to Talk. So kids will listen. Brilliant books, both of them. Very simple with a lot of great examples. Um, and I think in your situation, like you said, uh, you're sort of inheriting. How old are the your uh, husband's kids? Um, they are eight and 11. Okay, cool. So, yeah. so I think uh, you're going to really enjoy uh, reading. the. I would recommend reading both of them, actually. Yeah. Because, yeah. Because you're going to see a lot of like overarching uh, themes. Um, anyways, highly recommend it. Okay, so do you have any other final thoughts on the subject? Anything else that you wanted to share? No, I mean, this was a super fun conversation. I I pity you for having to edit it <laughs> into something, I don't know, linear or listenable. But I at least really enjoyed participating in it and um, <laughs> like I got a lot of like out of bouncing thoughts uh, off of you and kind of working through kind of looking at themes of, of my own past so 
yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. This was such a fun way to, to spend my evening. Same. I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot. And um, I think you're, I mean, from my experience, I think you're proof that you don't need to figure everything out. You can go on an adventurous, follow your curiosity, and and then you will land at a place, you know, where you can be happy, successful, and living the life that you sort of want, and you sort of embody that. Um, and it, I think the experiences that you had were so, almost so disjointed from each other that I'm like, what? Yeah. Uh, I think that's why it was uh, interesting to have this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, so I guess that captures everything. And I, for the audience listening, I'm going to have all the links in the show notes, the books, the links to some of uh, Jessica's Oberlo uh, viral videos. I'll have them in there <laughs> so people can check those out. And I'll also summarize uh, some of the key takeaways and learnings from this conversation. Um, so before we end, there's this one activity that I do with all my guests. It'll take 30 seconds. That's one. And then two, uh, as I quickly fetch my book, because I just left it over there by accident, is you can start thinking about what would you want to, what thought would you want to leave the audience with? Okay. So that'll give you some time to sort of think about what you want to say. And in the the meantime, I'm going to get that book right back. Okay. Okay, So these are the books. So one is, like I showed you, one was Crucial Conversations. Mm Mm-hmm. This is the one that I would highly recommend reading with it alongside it is this one called how to talk to little kids. Will listen. Why are you reading that book? I'm just very curious about human psychology, behavior, everything. And I'm, you know, uh, I am also, I think I have baby fever. I probably want to get married and have kids. Aww, <laughs> so cute. I just want to be a prepared and informed dad. Wow. Oh my gosh. Leave that on the table. When, when your date comes over, she'll get like, <laughs> you're like, oh my gosh, he's so good ahead of the game. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I just think that we, and this is, this is just my sort of philosophy and where I've reached in my life now is like we spend so much time focusing on the external, focusing on tools and learning all these skills, but we never really take time to like self 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 reflect, introspect, and learn about the brain and how the brain works and how people work and how emotions work. What's the subcontext? What's the context? What are the biases? We don't spend time doing any of that. And I think, um, you know, till now, everything that I've done till now has led me to this. And if I want to go forward in life, I have to develop a completely new set of skills mm-hmm. and start looking at everything from a slightly new perspective. And also, I'm just very nosy. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I mean, that's cool. I wish I had read that book before, <laughs> before my current adventure. <laughs> so, okay. So here's the activity. And mm-hmm. this is the book called 3000 What Questions All About Me. And you're going to give me a number between oh, cool. zero and 3001. And okay. I'm going to read out the question written on that. And you're going to try your best to answer that question. Okay. Um, I'll go with 313. 313? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Let's see. 313. Oh, there it is. Okay. Ready? Mm-hmm. Um. What do I feel when I hear a recording of my own voice? 
Oh, that's apt. <laughs> I wow. know, so random, but yeah, so spot on. <laughs> I um, I feel a connection with my maternal side, with my my mom and my grandmother. Um, we all like we have a similar. I don't know if there's like a grain or a warbliness. There's some quality that us three women have in common in our voices and people have remarked to me on my voice. Like there's just something, I don't know, different about it. And um, I'm fine with that. It doesn't bother me to hear my own voice, but you know what? We all are like the, it, it makes you uncomfortable to hear us sing. Not like, Oh, you're a bad singer. Shut up. Like, I've because I'm I've gotten over this and at karaoke I've been like okay and then the whole room just starts kind of squirming of like oh we shouldn't we should have just let her sit it to this one out so like um yeah so that's what it says I certainly don't like hearing my own singing voice but hearing my own speaking voice yeah it just reminds me of my my mom and my grandmother that is a very sweet answer uh i wasn't even i was not expecting that question or that answer so <laughs> this book is such a good conversation starter <laughs> yeah i was actually just thinking like i i would love to buy my own copy of that to like i don't know just to you know connect more with with my partner and his kids like what a fun what a fun book awesome absolutely i will also send you the links to all of this stuff right after this conversation um okay so we have had a great two hour long conversation. We've learned a lot uh, all the way from your early days, from house parties to now house. Uh, house nesting. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even know the correct word for homemaking, yeah. homemaking. from house uh, parties to homemaking. <laughs> that is so appropriate. Um, and so what would you want to leave the audience with? What is your message to the world? Um, practice a random act of generosity this week. Uh, and I think I would say that because your random act of, of generosity, Paul, is what led us to be talking here in the first place. And it sounds like through our conversations that both of us have, have practiced giving our time, our efforts, our energy with nothing in return and have seen that serendipitously lead to really cool things. So if you're, if you're listening, just, yeah. I dare you to, and I uh, hope it leads to something good for you. And if nothing else, you'll just feel good. That's awesome. This was super fun. And yeah. maybe in the near future, once, you know, you're a mother of three <laughs> and back to work and all that stuff, maybe we can come back and talk more about your lessons of raising a baby and the lessons from that book, yeah. <laughs> how to talk so little kids listen definitely yeah i'd love to do like a, a repeat of like you know i don't know newborn i don't know i have no idea you know this talk about the know, getting part. yourselves into like i'm not sure what comes next like <laughs> exactly. entering the ultimate like i don't know <laughs> phase. So. no yeah this was definitely a lot of fun um oh shit i never got to ask you this one question which was you know, with all the success that you got from YouTube and Oberlo, did you parlay that into any personal brand or anything on the side for yourself? No, I mean, I didn't want to be a drop shipping. I, I you know, the irony of all of this is that I wasn't, um, I myself was not a very successful drop shipper. 
um, I talked to a lot of successful dropshippers and I loved interviewing them. Um, and I would have liked to, like, maybe there was potential to do more videos for Shopify, like interviewing entrepreneurs or whatever, but um, it just didn't, didn't shake out that way. And so, um, no, nah, like, I didn't want to. I didn't want to continue with drop that that was my value to the audience was that I was a drop shipper if I were to be like now I'm going to I don't know talk about wine which I love wine but they'd be like oh we really don't give a shit you know we were here to learn how to make money from you not how to like enjoy a pinot noir right yeah yeah that is definitely one downside of you know once you pick a niche then it's very hard to step out of that and talk about something else and people get like really offended yeah um yeah anyways <laughs> Uses the algorithm too. So, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, have fun with your friends. I feel like they're coming over any minute now. And um, yeah, we'll be yeah. in touch with you next episode.